Thank you so much for that introduction, Nick. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum. Greetings of peace. Shalom. Salam. Uh, I'd like to begin by thanking the organizers and hosts of this conference for inviting me. Um, Nick and Jane Carroll and uh, everyone at the Ibn Arabi Society, Zaytuna College, the Center for Islamic Studies, and the Graduate Theological Union. It's an honor to speak here, um, especially alongside you know, the, the other um, more seasoned veterans, uh, Michael Sells, Professor Michael Sells, and everyone. <clears throat> so the prophet is reported to have said, uh, the scholars are the heirs of the prophets. Al-Ulama Warathatul Anbiya. The theme of my talk today is Jesus and Christic Sanctity and Ibn Arabi and Early Islamic Spirituality. Among the clearest proofs of the influence of Jesus and the presence of Christic Sanctity in Islam is arguably found in the writings and the life of Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi. Uh, others will discuss other aspects of Jesus in the, the life and writings of the Sheikh, um, including uh, his Christology and uh, the references to Jesus as the universal seal of sanctity. Uh, within my talk, I'm going to discuss the particular aspects of Christic sanctity that help define uh, the manifestation of Isawi or Christic saints throughout Islamic history. In Ibn Arabi's perspective, uh, each saint or friend of God takes his or her station from a prophet, including Adam, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, Mary, and Muhammad. In the writings of the Sheikh, one finds references to Idrisi, Enoch-like, Ibrahimi, Abraham-like, Musawi, Moses-like, Isawi, Jesus-like or Christic, and of course, Mohammedan saints, who as Muslims inherit their uh, sanctity through a particular prophet vis-a-vis -vis the intermediary and sunnah of the prophet of Islam. It's interesting to note that uh, at the, the head of Ibn Arabi's uh, spiritual, we'll call it a spiritual hierarchy or celestial hierarchy, are the four living prophets, Jesus or Isa, Ilyas or Elijah or Elias, Khidh, uh, the teacher of Moses mentioned in the Quran, and Enoch or Idris, who is the pole. It's important to note as well that Ibn Arabi's hagiology or his, his doctrine of, of sainthood or sanctity is primarily based on a saint's nearness to God. A prophetic inheritance is thus bestowed through a divine name and concomitantly through a particular prophet uh, via the prophet of Islam. For Ibn Arabi, each created being is determined by a particular divine name that governs it. Islamic spirituality itself can be seen as coming to know and reflect the particular divine names 
and prophetic lights that our Lord manifests to us and through us. According to another famous hadith, he who knoweth him or herself knoweth their Lord. Man arafa nafsahu faqad arafa rabbahu. And so in general, as we, as we speak today, um, it seems to me that we can all sort of be cognizant that this isn't simply uh, limited to history or texts, uh, the, the reality of the prophets, but there's always uh, a, a microcosmic and inner significance to uh, the prophets, especially within the writings of Ibn Arabi and the Sufis. And, and not only an inward significance, but also an outer significance in, in those that we see. Ultimately, uh, you know, one of the epithets of Jesus is Ruhullah, the, the, the Spirit of God. And all of uh, humanity is, uh, you know, at their, their essence, this Spirit. While the mark of a particular prophet is seen in the knowledge, station, qualities, and or miracles that the saint displays, generally within the context of Ibn Arabi at least, she follows the law and spiritual path of the Qur'an and Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad. A Musawi or Moses-like friend in Islam may, may specialize in Islamic law, for example, or display a radiant countenance as did Moses while an Isawi or Christic uh, saint may accentuate the inner teachings of Islam or Sufism, including spiritual poverty and, in, and the inward, inwardness of Christ. Other aspects of an Isawi, uh, of Isawi knowledge that even Arabi mentions are the science of, of letters and numbers, uh, healing, and in general, uh, you know, they're a theophany of mercy and love, for example. And so we see this, this sort of binary, this polarity between the Musawi and the Isawi. Moses uh, generally representing the law and rigor and Jesus, the spiritual path and love or mercy. While the Mohammedan saint balances the two to the extent possible. For Ibn Arabi, all of the 124,000 prophets are summarized and, th- and synthesized by the prophet of Islam. And for him, the highest level of sanctity is Mohammedan sanctity, or a saint who, st- who takes his or her station from the prophet. Therefore, Isawi saints in Sufism derive their sanctity from both Jesus and Muhammad. Ibn Arabi refers to this phenomena in his own words, sometimes as death approaches, the prophet from whom the person has inherited will be disclosed to him. For as the prophet said, the possessors of knowledge are the heirs to the prophets. Hence, as death approaches, he will see Jesus, Moses, Abraham, Muhammad, or some other prophet. Some of them may pronounce the name of the prophet from whom they have inherited in joy when he comes to them. For the messengers are all among the felicitous. While dying, such a person may say Jesus, or he will call him Messiah, as God himself has done. This is what usually happens. Those present will hear the friend of God speak words of this sort and will become suspicious, saying that at death 
he became a Christian and Islam was negated from him. Or he will name Moses and one of the, or one of the Israelite prophets, and they will say he became a Jew. But this person is one of the greatest possessors of felicity in God's eyes, for the common people never know this locus of witnessing. Only the folk of God, the possessors of unveiling. And now just a bit of commentary. Um, it, it's clear from even Arabi's perspective that Sufis who take their sanctity from Jesus, Moses, or another prophet don't leave the religion of Islam. From my perspective, um, it's possible, obviously, for a Christian or Jew or someone else to reach sanctity through Christianity or Judaism. Um, but even Arabi believes that these particular inheritances in relationship to, to Islam and, and Sufism uh, are, are alive within the context of Islam, within which the prophets and luminaries mentioned in the Bible are accessible to Muslims. Returning to Ibn Arabi's own connection to Jesus, he states, and this was mentioned yesterday, uh, he was my first teacher, my master, through whom I returned to God. Running parallel with and even initially preceding his study of Sufism in texts and with living teachers were his visions and dreams of the prophets and saints through the imaginal world, Alam al-Khayal or Alam al-Mithal. On this aspect of Ibn Arabi's thought, you know, I would argue Anri Korban is, is one of the authorities and that's a wonderful place to look. The Sheikh also writes, it was at his hands that I turned towards God and the spiritual path. Jesus' hands. He prayed for me that I should persist in religion, in this low world and the other. And he called me his beloved. He ordered me to practice renunciation and self-denial. As a result of the spiritual influence of Jesus, Ibn Arabi renounced the world, which included women for, for the first 18 years of wayfaring. He states, I am without any doubt the seal of Muhammadan sainthood in my capacity as heir of the Hashemite Muhammad and the Messiah, Jesus. While Ibn Arabi eventually realized he was heir of the Prophet of Islam and all of the prophets, he entered the spiritual path as an Isawi or Christic saint. Likewise, in several places he identifies other friends of God as Isawi, or those who walk in the footsteps of Jesus, ala qadam Isa, such as his first living spiritual master, Abul Abbas, Bayezid al-Bastami, and Mansur Halaj. In his poem, the Tarjuman al-Ashwaq, he writes of the woman Nizam, and this is important because, you know, often when we think in terms of uh, gender, we think, uh, that that uh, if it's an Isawi saint, all of those saints have to be men, and if it's a saint who follows Mary, they all have to be female. When actually, it's it's a bit more complicated, and I would argue, uh, you know, spiritually androgynous. He writes of the the female saint Nizam. Her speech restores to life as though she, in giving life, thereby were Jesus. Other prominent Sufis who have, who have been identified as Isawi throughout history include Ainul Qudat Hamadani, who was martyred at the age of 33, Siti Dinar from Java, and the Algerian Sheikh Ahmad al-Alawi. 
one of the best resources for this topic uh, is is the book The Seal of the Saints by Michel Chodkiewicz. And uh, he comments, The Isawi sees the best in all things. This is also true of Muhammad inasmuch as he is the sum of all prophetic types and consequently integrates within himself the particular virtues of each. On passing by a decaying carcass, his, his companion said, How it stinks! But the Prophet said, How white are its teeth! But in the case of the Mohammedan type of saint, the universal compassion that results from the perception of the positive quality of created beings, of the beauty or perfection which is inherent in them, is not made nakedly manifest, as in the case of the Christ-like saint. God is compassion, but he is also rigor, and the latter aspect may at times veil the former in the behavior of the Prophet of Islam or his heirs. One should note, uh, and this is sort of uh, the, the topic, my topic, is that this doctrine sort of didn't develop in a vacuum or come out of thin air. Um, there's precedence for this in the, in the traditions of the Prophet. In the aforementioned Hadith, the learned are the heirs of the Prophets. And we'll note, you know, this, the term ulama is usually translated as scholars, and that's certainly one appropriate uh, translation. When Ibn Arabi uses it, he seems to mean the possessors of knowledge, the Gnostics, and actually uses it more or less synonymous with Sufi or Sufis. And he prefers this, this term because it's connected to a divine name, Al-Alim, uh, the, the all-knowing. In another famous hadith, the Prophet tells his son-in-law, Ali, are you not pleased that your position in relation to me is that of Aaron in relation to Moses? The Prophet also said of a companion of his, the sky has not cast shade nor the earth raised up green plants for anyone who more resembles Jesus, the son of Mary, in truthfulness and trustworthiness than Abu Dhar. I'll note Abu Dhar was known you know, for his piety, but also f- he, was a, he was a fierce advocate for the poor. Following the Prophet, numerous Muslim friends of God resembled Jesus before even Arabi, as the Sheikh himself notes. I, and I'll argue that foremost among them are Imam Hussein and Mansur Halaj both of whom are venerated by both Sunnis and Shia. And they tend to transcend this binary because it, it wasn't as quite as reified and crystallized that, at the time that they were alive. To illustrate this, this point, we'll uh, quote a poem first before we speak about Hussein by Imam Muhammad Shafi. He writes, In Remembrance of Imam Hussein." My heart sighed, for my innermost being was in dejection. Sleep no longer came, and sleeplessness was bewildering. Oh, who shall be the bearer of a message from me to Hussein? Though the hearts and minds of some may disapprove, slaughtered though without sin himself, his shirt as if dyed through with crimson. Now the sword itself wails and the spear shrieks and the horse which once whined laments. The world quakes for the sake of the family of Muhammad. For their sake, 
the solid mountains might have melted away. Heavenly bodies sunk, the stars trembled, O veils were torn and breasts rent. He who asks blessings for the one sent to the tribe of Hashem, but attacks his son, truly this is strange. And if my sin is the love of the family of Muhammad, then that is a sin which I do not repent. Likewise, there's contemporary Shi'i scholar Alama Tabatabai, who studied and taught Ibn Arabi's texts in Iran in the 20th century. He narrates the events at Karbala perhaps better than, than we could. On the 10th day of Muharram, which was commemorated just this last week, so we're, we're currently in the month of Muharram, the first Islamic month, of the year 61 in the Islamic calendar, or 680, the imam lined up before the enemy with his small band of followers, less than 90 persons consisting of 40 of his companions, 30-some members of the army of the enemy that joined him during the night and day of war, and his Hashemite family of children, brothers, nephews, nieces, and cousins. The day, that day they all fought from morning until their final breath, and the imam, the young Hashemites, and their companions were all martyred. Among those who, who were killed were two children of Imam Hassan, who were only 13 and 11 years old, and a five-year-old child and a suckling baby of Imam Hussein. We're beginning to see that this, this is, you know, it's, it sort of turns into uh, passion narratives. And I, I was pleased, actually, that Zaytuna College uh, had their own Sunni passion narrative recently read by uh, Ali Atai, one of our colleagues here. And, and, and the students of Zaytuna. The army of the enemy, after ending the war, plundered the haram of the imam and burned his tents. They decapitated the bodies of the martyrs, denuded them, and threw them to the ground without burial. Then they moved the members of the haram, all of whom were helpless women and girls, along with the heads of the martyrs, to Kufa. Among the prisoners were three male members, a 22-year-old son of Imam Hussein, who was very ill and unable to move, namely Imam Ali ibn Hussein, his four-year-old son, Muhammad ibn Ali, who became the fifth imam, and finally Hassan Muthanna, the son of the second imam. Also a son-in-law of Imam Hussein, who had been wounded during the war, lay among the dead. They found him near death, and, though the, and through the intercession of one of the generals did not cut off his head. Rather, they took him with the prisoners to Kufa, and from there to Damascus before Yazid. Before I proceed, I'll just, I'll just mention that uh, as, as a lover of an advocate of nonviolence, it's, it's interesting to note that Gandhi cites the resistance of Hussein as one of his uh, inspirations. The Umayyad Caliph Yazid, who ordered the uh, Imam Hussein to... to essentially swear allegiance to him, and then had his generals execute him, can be likened uh, to, to Pontius Pilate, who asked Jesus in the Gospel of John, Are thou the king of the Jews? In other words, are you a threat to my power? In the Gospel, Jesus replies, Thou sayest that I am king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. To which Pontius Pilate replies, what is truth? 
In a similar matter, Yazid was threatened by Hussein and demanded that the grandson of the Prophet swear allegiance to him. Hussein's subsequent resistance in martyrdom is seen as an act of submission to the truth. Yazid and his army can be interpreted symbolically as the lower self, or nafs, which the spirit or intellect, outwardly represented by Hussein, must battle in the greater jihad, the jihad al-Akbar. In the words of Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi, religion is your Hussein, while desires and hopes are pigs and dogs. Yet you kill the first through thirst and feed these two. How can you keep on cursing the wicked Yazid and Shimr? You are a Shimr and a Yazid for your own Hussein. Shimr was the general, the commander of Yazid who personally beheaded the Imam. During the month of Muharram, the events at Karbala are dramatically retold by preachers, remembered by the faithful in processions, and reenacted in passion plays by actors, which have remarkable, remarkable parallels in, in Christian traditions. Essentially, this, this is summed up uh, in, in what's, what's been called uh, this meta-historical event by the famous saying, every day is Ashura, every land is Karbala. Hussein's martyrdom at Karbala is a crystallized moment in time that reveals the nature of truth and falsehood, justice and injustice, and light and darkness in the daily lives of all, all who remember. While Islamic sources are generally opposed to the exclusive localization of the divine reality, or Allah, and emphasize both the transcendence and the eminence of God, the Imam, like the Prophet before him, is seen as the universal or perfect human, al-Insan al-Kamil. He harmoniously reflects the names and attributes of the divine reality here on earth. If in Christianity God is anthropomorphic in Islam, especially the mystical currents within both Sunni and Shi Islam, the human being is theomorphic. Moreover, the light of the Imam is primarily seen as the light of the Prophet Muhammad. Hussein does not eclipse the light of the Prophet, but reflects it as, does the, as the moon does the sun in the night that follows the cycle of prophecy. I would venture to say that there is something very akbari in the veneration of the family of the Prophet, where they reflect or embody the divine names. For those who want to explore this, I would recommend the, the research of uh, Muhammad Ali Amir Mowazi, who's looked at the earliest Shia hadith and has found that these, these, are, these traditions exist very early on. Professor Sells also translates the Sufi Quranic commentary attributed to Imam Jafar as-Sadiq, which is a commentary on, on the verse, Adam received from his Lord the names. And, and as I said, this illustrates that there's something very akbari in this perspective. Before any of his creation existed, God was. He created five creatures from the light of his glory and attributed to each one of them one of his names. As the glorified Mahmud, he called his prophet Muhammad. Being the sublime Al-Ali, he called the Amir of the believers Ali. Being the creator, Fatir, of the heavens and earth, he fashioned the name Fatima. Because he had names that were called in the Quran the most beautiful, Husna, he fashioned the names from the same Arabic root, Hassan and Hussein. 
Then he placed them to the right of the throne. Within the context of greater Islam and Sufism, all human beings and all of creation reflect the divine names. The early saints of Islam thus become possible models for what Abdul Karim Jihli would describe in greater detail in his treatise, The Universal Human, Al Insan Al Kamil. Turning to Halaj, uh, about how much time do we have? Thank you. Strikingly, his name, his first name, is Hussein as well. Al Hussein ibn Mansur Halaj was born in the province of Fars in Iran and is the most studied and celebrated Sufis and is among the most celebrated and studied Sufis in the Islamic world in the West. The name Halaj refers to his father's occupation as a carter of wool. This name is symbolic because the Arabic word suf means wool and was most likely used to refer to the early Sufis as aesthetics and wearers of woolen garments. Thus Halaj revealed the doctrine of Sufism and his own inner secret in the most explicit manner possible by discarding the garment that concealed his inner reality. Halaj was a disciple of Sal Tustari, Abul Qasim Junaid, and others, and is one of the central figures associated with the formative period of Sufism and the school of Baghdad. His life and teachings have been extensively studied by the French scholar Louis Massignot and translated into English as the Passion of Al-Halaj. And I think it's interesting to revisit Massignon's work in light of Ibn Arabi. Um, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect when we approach figures and fields and so forth. Um, and uh, there, it's, it seems to me that, that we can learn a lot by a, a sort of a comparison. Halaj was crucified and martyred for uttering the theophonic locution, Anil Haq, or I am the truth, I am the real as well as for other theological positions and political associations. These words appear in one of his poems. One with thee make me, O my one through oneness, faithed in sincerity no path can reach. I am the truth, and truth for truth is truth. Anal haq, wal haq, lil haq, haq. Robed in its essence, thus beyond separation. These statements scandalized the more conservative jurists and theologians of his day and had grave consequences. In a manner similar to Jesus, at least in Christianity, Halaj was tried for heresy, lashed, crucified, and eventually martyred. Halaj is remembered in hagiographies for performing Christic miracles, living a life of asceticism and interiority and teaching the most inner truths to his disciples and companions. Moreover, his life resembles Jesus as he is envisaged in the Gospels and the Quran. Mazignon observes, The typical effigy of the Quranic Jesus, struck by legendary history, the ideal symbol of martyrdom consistent with the Christology of Sufism. Halaj appears before the observer as a strangely living image of the real Christ, as we know him, 
an original image, image certainly, with his marriage, his secession from other mystics, his apostleship among Sunnis and Shia, and among infidels as well, his long and so hypocritical legal trial, it is an image powerfully modeled on the surface, and it is concerted dramatization of his life and the exquisite fig- uh, uh, figurization that surrounds his death. Brutal politicians remaining undecided or skeptical, corrupt doctors of the law, implacable or indifferent, powerless disciples sold out, observers touched with emotion, compassionate women, faithful hearts. The correlation of their gestures reveal the secret intentions of these onlookers who become gripped, enlightened, and searched to the depths of their soul by the flame of this central light which they observe and which judges them. Halaj also spoke extensively about the return of the Messiah and saw the friends of God as being mystically connected to both Jesus and the Mahdi, the one who precedes Jesus in Islam. There are even reports that someone else may have been executed in Halaj's place and that like Christ, people saw him after his real or apparent martyrdom. It's a bit ambiguous, the, the, the crucifixion, with, obviously, within uh, Islam and especially when we compare it the different perspectives across religions. Halaj's teachings concerning the Messiah as well as, as his own life and death all bring the spiritual message of Jesus to the center of Muslim consciousness. One of the most moving descriptions of uh, Halaj is, is in Attar's Tazkirat al-Awliya, the, the last chapter. Attar writes, It seems strange to me that, sh- that someone should consider it proper for the voice of Verily, I am God, to come from a bush without the bush intervening. Why then isn't it proper for I am the truth to come from Halaj without Halaj intervening? The secret of the doctrine of unity, of Tawheed in Islam, is also alluded to in a famous hadith, Qalb al-Muhmin ash-Rahman, the heart of the faithful is the throne of the all-merciful. I would argue, and this is the subject of my uh, research at the moment, that the, that the hadith and the hadith Qudsi are actually far more explicit than anything that Halaj has said. Uh, Halaj is a bit mild compared to what we see in the, the hadith Qudsi the sacred hadith where God speaks through the prophet in the first person. And it's not limited to one person. It's seen as the potential state of all beings. One such hadith says, whoever shows enmity to someone devoted to me, this is God speaking, uh, I shall be at war with him. My servant draws not near to me with anything more loved by me than the religious duties I have enjoined upon him. And my servant continues to draw near to me with additional works so that I love him or her. When I love him, I am his hearing with which he hears, his seeing with which he sees, his hand with which he strikes, and his foot with which he walks. This is accepted as authentic. From a Sufi perspective, Christ saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is a reference to the inner reality of prophecy in particular and the station of the sanctified soul in general. Although Halaj and the Sufis never claimed to be prophets with a new religious dispensation. Many Muslims unfamiliar with the mysteries of Sufism were alarmed at the assertions of Halaj. 
Mazignon remarks, Halaj was only uttering aloud what Sufism, ever since Hassan Basri, Marouf, and others were affecting in silence, but he felt compelled to say it, and the time for it to be said had come. We may recall a saying of a close companion of the Prophet, Abu Huraira, I have memorized two kinds of knowledge from the Messenger of God, peace and blessings be upon him. I have divulged one of them to you, and if I divulge the second, my throat would be cut. A similar narration is found in, in Shia Hadith as well, in relation to two other companions. Halaj himself is quoted to have said, Of course I conceal the jewels of my knowledge, lest the ignorant beholding it should be tempted. Abul Hassan Ali did the same before me, and he transmitted it to Hussein and Hassan, and the devout should approve my execution. It's interesting to note that the Sufi orders, most, most of them trace their lineages through Hassan and Hussein back to Ali, back to the Prophet. In Halaj's own words, uh, this, is, this is essentially his defense of, of Tawheed from his perspective. Is it I or thou, these twain, two gods? Far be it, far be it for me to affirm two. Selfhood is thine in my nothingness forever. In a number of sources, he does accept and embrace his fate. And Muslims following him presented different views concerning him. But he was supported by Shibli, Abu Hamid Ghazali, Shahabuddin Sukhrawardi, Atar, Rumi, Yunus Emri, Jami, and many others up to our own day. Others said that, that this shouldn't have been disclosed to the public. Ibn Arabi himself offers what I'm willing to call a somewhat, somewhat patronizing support. He says that Halaj's station was, was one of sort of a neophyte, but not the supreme state. If most uh, Christians would, would not accept another divine manifestation or theophany such as Jesus, a number of Christian mystics from the Eastern and Western churches have spoken about the deification of men and women. Meister Eckhart, in fact, states, whatever Holy Scripture says of Jesus is also true of every good and divine man. The Sufi, like the prophet and Jesus before him, has reached the heights of divine knowledge and selfhood and sees the one divine self in his or her heart and the heart of the neighbor. Halaj, as the Isawi Sufi par excellence, possessed intimate knowledge of the divine reality and awareness of his own extinction in and subsistence through the divine self. Moreover, he suffered persecution and martyrdom and left an influential legacy that has been debated and defended by both Muslims and Christians to this day. In closing, I'd like to mention that as we recall the lives and, and sanctity of these blessed figures this weekend, let us also recall those Muslims and Christians in Bethlehem and greater Palestine who were suffering, and those in Baghdad and Karbala, where uh, Halaj and Hussein were martyred and buried, who have suffered from decades of war, many of whom embody the sanctity of Jesus and Mary, or the ordinary sanctity that comes with great suffering, ordinary. We may also remember those who suffer in our own country because of their religion, their race, their gender, their sexuality, or simply because of poverty. 
And I'll add, you know, a prayer. May we all, may we all discover uh, something more of the light of the, the prophets within our own hearts and manifest their presence through our actions, inshallah. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum.